Warning. The following podcast may cause you to change your understanding of what it really means to be a human being. Side effects may range from a minor loss to complete annihilation of ego, a feeling of merging with something bigger than previously conceived, and a deep, abiding peace. Please, continue at mortal risk to yourself as a separate entity. Welcome. Enjoy. Greetings, everybody. Welcome to another episode of All One Time Live. I'm your host, Ken Jenkins. This is the fourth conversation with Stone Age skills expert Chris Moraski. They're on a bit of a break in this uh, new year already, if you didn't know. Uh, most of us in the West celebrate the new year on the 1st of January. Chris likes to acknowledge the beginning of the new year as the day after the shortest day, solstice, which happened on the 21st of December. So, Happy New Year, everybody. This is another wonderful conversation, as they all are. You can check the description notes for content and a link to one of Chris's videos on using a hand drill to start a fire. In this episode and in subsequent episodes, uh, Chris is going to talk in a little bit of useful detail about a Stone Age skill that you might be able to pick up. Of course, it doesn't compare to... uh, witnessing the experience from a trained professional or teacher such as Chris or anyone else with the skill and your own direct experience in trying it yourself and through trial and error as we discuss uh, the the failings are really not failings it's a word Chris says he doesn't even use it's an opportunity to learn it's all school it's all teaching so wherever you're at whatever you're doing take a breath and be in your body, be in the place that you're at, be in this moment right now. There's nothing more beautiful than realizing being, to witness it in its ever-blooming state. If you have any questions for Chris or myself or comments or things you'd like to hear more about, or explore in future conversations and episodes, please email me at alloneTimeLive at gmail.com. And with that, we'll get into this week's episode. Love yourselves, love one another. As always, enjoy, enjoy. Here you go. Hello. Hey, my friend, how are you? I'm doing good, doing good. It's been a busy period with the holidays and such. How about yourself? Ah, in some ways, yes, it's been busy, and in some ways, no. But I have a different relationship than I think a lot of uh, a lot of white folks do around these holidays. You know, I celebrated the new year like six days ago, uh, and uh, and you know that was that was my. Uh, recognition of the turning of the seasons, the days now getting longer, and uh, and it was it was actually really uh, beautiful. I was sitting in hot springs in Montana, looking up at the night sky and the conjunction of uh, what was it Saturn and Jupiter 
Was it those two? Or is it Saturn and Jupiter? Yeah, I think you're right. Jupiter, Neptune. Um, anyway, they were yeah. they were lights out in the sky. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the names are never as important as the meaning that we derive from them. So uh, I was watching something that happens once every roughly 800 years and several shooting stars. And, um, you know, for me, that felt right. And, uh, and here, uh, now I've come back to uh, Los Angeles. I've left the land of the Salish and Kootenai and Shoshone and Bannock. And now I'm here in the lands of the Keech and Chumash. And we don't have a tree up. We don't have any decorations up. Um, you know, we're, we're not really focusing on this um, capitalistic, media-driven, twisted understanding of pagan and indigenous tradition. We're just kind of letting all of that go. Yeah, I've appreciated in uh, my family from the States, there's been a real cooling off of the gift giving. And the past few Christmases, it's just been about uh, being together and taking, you know, whatever time off of work has been given to folks to to do projects together at home. And, and they've shared that with me uh, over here. And for me, it's it's always a good reason to uh, have some extra quality time with my daughter, um, who I uh, will never see as much as I want. Um, but that's, uh, that's excellent. Yeah, it's not so much. I totally agree about the, the, the corporate leveraging of, you know, let's buy more things, um, more and more and more things. And it sure makes a whole lot of sense to celebrate the celestial turning of time from the shortest day of the year to, to that moment when they begin to grow lighter and lighter. That is the, that's the proper new year. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, living on the land there in Montana, I really feel it. I've been, I've been feeling how the days are getting shorter and the nights are getting longer. And, um, uh, you know, my alarm clock there are the, uh, the magpies. The magpies uh, in the wintertime are always the birds who call first in the morning. And so inside of the, the yurt, which in Mongolia they call a gare, uh, inside of the gare, it's very dark. And so it's getting light out outside uh, without letting a whole lot of that inside. So I kind of rely on the magpies. Um, I'm always awake anyway, uh, early in the morning, but um, they're the ones that kind of tell me, here's what time it is. And that changes a little bit day by day. Do you have a morning drink? Uh, this makes me think of having coffee at, at some point before midday. I do. Yeah, I've really gone into this. Um, uh, I guess it's the concept of bulletproof coffee. Um, and I'm not doing their their brand, but... I'm having coffee in the morning that has MCT oil and uh, half a dozen different kinds of mushrooms. And some of those mushrooms are ones that I've gone out and I've gathered in the forest myself. So I make up uh, a tea of reishi and uh, red belted polypore and um, turkey tail. And uh, sometimes I'm able to find lion's mane 
And then I have uh, a friend of mine up in British, well, I guess he's in Alberta now. He's gonna send me some chaga so that I can add that to it. And then I've got uh, some others that I bring in from a commercial mix. Uh, I'm kind of fond of cordyceps, you know, that's yeah. totally, that's the alien one. <laughs> that one is crazy. And, and we've and, always got a pot brewing here of, of chaga. Uh, and that's, it's the stuff that we typically get from Estonia if we don't find it around here. And a friend of mine who has the gift of chaga finding him, uh, he just visited a couple of weeks ago. And after he parked his car and walked his, his way through the small stand of trees uh, to get to our apartment, he, he said, oh, there's chaga right, uh, right on your stand of woods. And I look for this stuff all the time. <laughs> You know, it grows on like one in every 20,000 birch trees and it grows on other trees, of course, too. But uh, he just, you know, like there's some plants that you have that relationship with. They sort of wave to you and he's got that with chaga and he's right yeah. on. There's a nice fist sized chunk sitting on top of a stump up there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, very cool. Very cool. Yeah. And there's definitely something to that uh, relationship I find very frequently I have uh, plants and animals and stones that are waving to me and calling my attention. And I notice them because I can't not notice them. You know, they're, they're waving and yeah. I just, yeah, it's a, it's a kind of a consciousness. So you've picked Rishi in North America? Yeah. Yeah. Now it's, it's a little different from, there's a number of different varieties. So this is the West Coast variety, which is uh, genus Ganoderma. And uh, it grows actually really quite big. Uh, I was down in Florida a couple of years ago, and there's a different reishi that grows down there. And uh, I was able to find some of that. And energetically, at least, um, making that into a tea and drinking that, it felt different. Um, and I, it really felt good in my body. There's, there's more, there's always so much more to learn, you know, and you were, uh, to take a sidestep here, you were asking me before our conversation about the, uh, the sage in Montana. Yeah. And, and I think you're talking about sagebrush. Is it that is. Right? It's it's sagebrush. Okay. Yep. And ironically, and so Chris, just before this call, five minutes before, a dog that we're fostering right now, he's got a lot of gumption. He's 16 months old. He's a mix of a border collie, German shepherd, Australian shepherd. He grabbed the remaining sagebrush that I have. I told you I'm running low. And he ran off with the bag and spread it all over the kitchen floor and the furniture. So I'm now in dire need. It was great timing. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, no coincidences. I'm glad. <laughs> Not at all. I, I'm glad you have your own personal guru there just guiding your way. <laughs> Indeed, yep, yep. But uh, so go on with sagebrush. And, and, and the other one that you mentioned also, I, I don't know much about that uh, in the, um, that grows behind the place where you're at. Right, right. So um, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but the, you know, how every plant is a teacher, and yet there are some that are very specific guides along the human journey. And so in North America, the big ones for most people would be sage, cedar, sweetgrass, and then uh, tobacco. 
Yeah. And, and so the uh, sage has the energetic quality of pushing away negativity. Sweetgrass has, it brings in sweetness. So it brings in that love. It opens hearts. And cedar does both. And tobacco is a communication plant. So I think of tobacco as, you know, we're offering this to another being, to a stone, to a, um, you know, everything has energy. So even if it's something that science tells us is, is dead, if we looked at it under an electron microscope, it's still moving. The molecules are moving. So in offering this tobacco, um, it is a way of... Um, really it's 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 for yourself it's not really directly for that plant or animal or whatever it is um, a tool to open up your ability to dissolve the boundaries between self and other so that you can actually connect and connection is love connection is gratitude connection is is how we um, how we feel into um, that interconnectedness that is the, the truth of, of our being more than this physical body. Yeah. And, um, but back to sage, when, when we say sage, um, most people, if you look at the types of sages that they are using, there's two different kinds. There's the genus salvia, which here in California would be black sage and purple sage and hummingbird sage, um, a variety of different ones of that sort. And then you have the artemisias. And when, when we look at that list, it includes the sagebrush and also mugwort and also coyote sage and you know a whole variety of other different kinds of sages too. They're all artemisias. And those are the ones that tend to be um, what's used in ceremony. And uh, so, uh, you know, I, I particularly love that um, the sagebrush is something that today is, I don't know, almost like people are walking past it. Um, there's so much of it down here in Southern California. There's so much of it there in Montana. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, it's kind of ignored in a lot of ways because it is so common. And in our um, colonizer consciousness, our, our type of society, things that are common are not valuable. You know, love has, yeah. you know, love has to be scarce. Um, white sage becomes really elevated because it's not particularly common. And uh, it's big and showy and uh, it has all of the markers for something that our colonizer consciousness would latch onto and say, this is super valuable. This is super wonderful. And it is, but not more so than the incredibly common uh, sagebrush that's all over the place. That's what and I'm in love with. I really am. I, I love that Montana sagebrush. I've, I, so what I do with these podcasts, I burn some before I smudge up, I smudge the equipment and I put a little bit in my mouth. Um, mm. And it's, it is, it, it does healing. It does something that I can't articulate, but it's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I'm totally with you there. Um, I've I've gone through so much of my life being just arrogant. Um, yeah, and right. Really, yeah. Really not wanting to take lessons from uh, pretty much anybody. Uh, and I think that there's a lot of value to that. There's a lot of value in avoiding indoctrination into other views. Mm-hmm. And um and I've always sought to find, you know, that as, as purely as I could in nature. And the most pure teachings that I receive are the ones that are, um, you know, directly from sitting and being very, very conscious and present. What are you here to teach me? What, what am I here to learn? And, uh, and yeah, the Artemisias are just amazing in that way. And and you the one that you had mentioned was uh, mugwort, but you're saying that the sagebrush is also in, in Artemisia. Yep, yep, exactly. So, um, yeah, if we can figure out how to make it work, I can send you some a uh, couple of different varieties of mugwort, and then um, the uh, the coastal sagebrush, which is the one we have down here in California, as well as the Great Basin sagebrush. The one that we have there in Montana, right. and then you can uh, you can you know tap into what these different kinds of teachings are from these related plants. Oh, Chris, that would be wonderful. We'll find a way to to make an uh, some kind of equal exchange there, whatever it is. And was that a that, reindeer picture that you sent? <laughs> no, that that was a mule deer. Yeah, <laughs> deer yeah, yeah. Deer. I don't know if it was intended to be reindeer or not, but you know, those are the. And and we mentioned this too in uh, in the pre uh, podcast um, text exchange that you know the the indigenous people here the Sami you know they're reindeer herders. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. This is the really amazing deep relationship with yeah. the um, and with the land. Um, I'm really I, I would love to spend some time with the Sami. You know they're they're pretty much the the white indigenous people. Yeah. I, I, that feels good. As soon as that idea came up, it felt good. And I think it's something to look into. I think it's a little uh, something we can, we can probe and see what opens up and just follow the green lights. And um, uh, it feels good, man. So we'll, we'll water that little plant and see how it grows. Excellent. 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 Mm -hmm. Sounds good. Yeah, it'd be cool. It'd be great to have you here. I'd love to spend some more time up north. Uh, you know, I spent uh, a winter up in Yokmok, um, which, you know, it, it actually houses or, or is the place where they have the National Sami Museum and uh, mm. spent some time uh, herding reindeer, actually. I had an opportunity when the with some Sami and my daughter's mom uh, when when we were younger um, she was studying the indigenous, well, the sovereignty rights of indigenous people. And, and at that time, specifically mm. the, the indigenous people of Northern Sweden, and they're also in Northern Finland, the Kola Peninsula of Russia and uh, up in Norway. And, and we had an opportunity to go uh, participate in their herding of reindeer when they bring all the calves in and they kind of, you know, sort of, uh, when the herd is found, they go behind the herd and they've got these fences miles long um, and a Swedish mile is 10K. Um, but uh, oh. to, to sort of funnel them eventually into a corral where they're kind of mad with 
confusion and the calves and the mothers are separated and they're stampeding around in a circle and their their energy is high. They're, I'm sure they're frightened. They're worked up. Um, and you go in and you, you s let them calm enough so that you are seeing matches of the calves with the adults. And then by the mark on the adult's ear, which is how they sort of, in the, in the West, we'd brand them. Um, they, they notice the marking in the adult's ear, and then you capture that calf and you put the same mark in the calf's ear. And I was even able to, to put oh. a mark in the calf's ear. And it's by cutting it with a knife. Um, and then you let them go. And, and until it's time to, I don't know what the best way is to say, but to, to harvest or to, to take their life for their, for the meat, they have, um, this like mobile slaughterhouse or, or processing station. So, that, so most of the life of that animal is, is free roaming, grazing, migrating, uh, and it's just in that that short time in the beginning, and then also at the end, where there's probably some heightened experience of 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 that. Uh, I don't know if you can call it a hunt, but that that capturing of the animal and and the the harvesting of the meat. As I understand it, this is this white guy from the states that has had this small experience. So this is my level of understanding. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, I, one of the thoughts that's going through my head now is how, you know, I'm doing this program here in Montana, and, um, and I've got a lot of people there who are, um, almost all are very new to um, the skills and to this life way. And so there's a big focus on materials and methods. And so you know, what kind of wood can I use in order to start a fire? What's the right technique to most efficiently be able to move these sticks to create a fire? Um, what are all of the different ways in which they can be configured to make this work? And so materials and methods is, uh, you know, those are, the, those are the first steps. And I've had people approach me and talk about, well, you know, you really need to be writing all of this stuff down because, you know, you won't be here forever. And it would be really sad if all of your knowledge was to be lost. And I think about the Sami and I know that their, um, their birch bark technology is fabulous. They're doing some incredible things with birch bark that um, things that uh, here in, in Northern North America that the tribes were not doing with birch bark. And they've got a, a really cool uh, footwear design where they have uh, fur on the underside of the foot of the shoe that's used um, in snow time. And the hair for the front half of the boot is facing in one direction and the hair on the back half of the boot is facing in the other direction. So that when you're going up and down slopes, you get good traction. You know, and these things are, that's, that's amazing. That's smart. That's super cool. And materials and methods are the, the least valuable of what these cultures and what the, the wisdom keepers um, have to offer. You know, it's all of the things that are really hard to put down into words that are really difficult to write a book that really conveys what it is. Mm -hmm. But 
you know, you get a taste of it when you're out with them, when you're out with the Sami and the caribou, um, or you're, you know, sitting in a sweat with, uh, with a, uh, a community of Blackfeet who have had these songs passed down from generation to generation in an unbroken lineage. Yeah, there's so much texture and visceral knowledge that's lost in just a, a written uh, telling of something. It's, it's the full experience, which is beyond even what we may call our, our five major senses. And I'm, I, I know we've got many more than just those five, but it's that, those senses that are able to absorb the different frequencies and, and dimensions of information that accompany the real event. And of course, any good teaching, it takes repetition. So it's really being, you know, indoctrinated and culturated uh, into these experiences in order to really get that, that learning. Information becomes knowledge, becomes wisdom. And that takes time and application and understanding and uh, humility. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So we've been, uh, we had, uh, a fair stretch of time here where our focus was all about fire, fire used outdoors. And we were starting fires with a bow drill, with hand drill, with uh, flint and steel, using a variety of different methods. We did a class in which we um, just went for a hike out on the landscape without bringing anything for tools from the modern era. Mm-hmm. you know just just the clothing on your backs and um and then we could only utilize to make a fire as a group activity whatever we found that was local and stone age so you know if we found a glass bottle we couldn't use that uh it was just local stone age materials and um and so we made we made a bow drill set using a cottonwood root that we found along the river and uh, shaped a spindle, I believe also it was out of a chunk of cottonwood root and made a bow out of dogbane fibers and used, um, used the skull um, of, a, of a deer as the bearing block to press down on that spindle. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I've, I've done this class, I call it Quest for Fire. I've done it a, a bunch of times in a bunch of different environments. And what happened was what almost always happens is we ended up uh, breaking our cord and then making another cord and breaking that cord. And finally, we got a coal using a hand drill. And it's almost always that it's the hand drill that actually turns out to be, from a Stone Age perspective, the most efficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and what do we learn when we go and do that? Well, you know, one of the biggest things that we learn is um, ego dismissal. You know, like they, they, trying to start a fire in the forest with old techniques with a lot of arrogance is just such a recipe for disaster. And, uh, and so, you know, we're, we're, I'm telling stories, you know, we're, we're thinking deeply and feeling into um, these old ways of doing things in which, you know, it really, um, it matters that 
that we receive a fire, that we receive an ember, um, that we invite this ember, which is called the child, um, this uh, manifestation of masculine and feminine energies that come together to create something that is a quantum ring of energy out from its more inert state. Mm. And, um, and once that child has life, then we give it breath and bring it to a flame. And then we're constantly feeding and nurturing it until it's big enough that it gives back to the community. Um, you know, in a way, the very first um, domesticated animal, hmm. you know, science would say, no, 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 it's, it's not alive. But um, what is alive is always something that is an arbitrary definition. You know, fire is something that eats, it breathes, it yeah. moves. It grows. It yeah, it lives and it dies, you know. Yeah. All these qualities. Yeah. And it's just like us in the sense that it, um, it breathes oxygen and it exhales carbon dioxide. Um, so, um, yeah, we're, we're learning about all of these cool... <laughs> and warm different things we did another class where we um we hiked off into the back country a ways and then um started a fire with a hand drill on the spot or maybe we started that one with a bow drill and then we um we had a cow horn now in the in the plains tribes they would use a buffalo horn and that would be um ground at the tip so that there was an air hole mm. and then the end of it would be loosely capped so that there was a flow of air that would go from one side to the other. And then they would pack that with um, buffalo dung, dried buffalo dung or uh, grasses or mosses or tree bark, you know, and, and have that food with just, a, just barely enough airflow there to keep it going. And, and it's a learning curve. <laughs> how to set that up in the way that's going to be able to maintain that coal for, you know, a good four hours until you pause and dump it out, kindle a new fire, repack it, and then you move on. But once you get the strategy down, it's way easier and more reliable than starting a fire from scratch each right, time. Right. And what size of a coal is it that you're uh, maintaining this way? So what we did is we, you know, we started out with this tiny little ember and then we transferred the ember to a, um, an elk dropping. So, you know, that's roughly the size of the, um, the, the size of the last digit, of the last joint of your thumb. Mm. So it's about that size. And, um, and then we, you know, so we got that glowing. And then we dropped that and, uh, and a couple other little ones in there too. And, um, and we did not, <clears throat> we didn't have it last for four hours. Uh, I think it was out in, in less than an hour, uh, close to an hour, but it's a learning curve, you know, and I'm always down for people to not succeed in the most elevated kind of a way of you know yeah we did it for four hours that was great 
because we learn so much by not achieving that right off the bat. Right on. Uh, you know, if I, if I handed everybody really nicely prepared fire kits and then taught them just how to do it and everybody was able to get a fire, then I am confident that if things were really rough, if it had been raining for the last you know, a couple of days and everything was wet and they were out in the woods and they had to make their own, I don't think they could do it. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, we learn so much by kind of working at it and leaning into the edges and, you know, and seeing, seeing what we can discover along the journey. Because it's all about all the journey. Yeah, and it's all learning. It, it is all learning. Every single apparent mishap, failure, uh, fight, um, challenge, you know, this is all learning. If we're paying attention, if we have that, that right attitude and that humility to, to see what we can learn from it, it's all learning. Yeah, yeah. So my focus on things in the, in the way that I teach and also the way that I strive to live is from a journey-based mentality as opposed to a destination mentality. And um, those folks who are living with destination as their focus, they are the ones who say, yeah, you know, like in a while, in a bit, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a promotion and then life is going to be better and I'm going to find this, you know, perfect partner and then my life is going to be better and then I'm going to get this house, this car, and then life is going to be better and then finally I'm going to retire and then I'm going to get to do the things I've always really wanted to do and my life is going to be better. And when you reach those markers, then you're there and you haven't been living your life to really be present and enjoying what is in the moment. So your mind immediately jumps to the next step along the way, the next marker that you're trying to get to. And so you're almost never in a space of really living the life that you want. Mm -hmm. It's not a life that cultivates joy and appreciation of gratitude. So I'm always striving to live life as a journey. How do I really deeply appreciate where I am in this moment while also maintaining a compass course? So yeah, yeah we're, we're, learning, we're learning so much. We learn from our apparent failures. That's not a word that I uh, tend to use very often. You know, it's, um, we're, we're receiving all of these lessons and these lessons help us to understand more deeply who we are why we're here and what we have to offer. It just reminds me again of something we've talked about before, the thing that I might call dark teachers, but it, in any variance of, of that, um, the, the phrase, it doesn't happen to you, it happens for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and just yeah. to appreciate this, yeah, this moment right now, whenever I do that, whatever it is I'm doing, it can be, it can apparently be nothing. And if I sink down into this present moment, it is beautiful so satisfying yeah 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 i i'm 100 with you there uh it ties into one of the things that i experience uh there in montana because you know we get we get some pretty major cold and some intense winds through uh the the open valley that we're in and 
that cold is extremely relative. Um, you know, I, I find that um, if I really am in the moment, if I'm really present with it, it's not as cold. Yeah. But what makes it really cold, what makes it difficult is the fear that I'll get colder. Mm -hmm. The fear that if I can't somehow um, get to um, get out of the wind, get more clothes on, get around the fire, drink something hot, something, 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 then I will suffer more. And, um, and you know, there's a reality to that. Because when I'm out there in the cold and the wind's blowing, I, the calories that are being burned up in my body, and I will have to get to a something in order to, um, to keep things maintained, keep my body maintained well. But what really makes it challenging and what really shifts my reality around um, even the amount of calories that I'm burning is all about what I believe. Say that again, the, what, what you, the, the experience that you're having in the cold, uh, and the, is it that the amount of calories you're burning has to do with where your belief is on it? I believe so too. Um, you know, there's, there's always things that are happening on many different levels, mm -hmm. um, uh, on a, on a practical physical level, there's the way that things normally go which is that just basic metabolism. I'm going to burn through a certain number of calories every hour when the temperature drops to X temperature um, and the wind chill is, is Y, then my uh, metabolism has to kick in a little harder. I'm burning through more calories. But, you know, like I almost died out in the snow once. And, mm -hmm. um, and so I've, I have gone through that experience of not being able to rationalize how I did not die from all of the intense cold, why I woke up and felt warm when I should have been frozen solid. And so, um, you know, I have to look a little deeper and I have to look at you know, where's my consciousness? How am I, how am I present? Where, I'm, where am I placing my thoughts and my expectations? You know, if, if my thoughts and expectations are that it's really cold out and I need to get somewhere to protect myself from this situation, then I'm going to continue to get colder until I change my environment. But if I'm changing my consciousness, then, then what? Um, suddenly things don't feel as cold. And if things don't feel as cold, are they as cold? Yeah, and you perhaps, know? you know, there, there's certainly a, a mind-body connection. So it can be that you're putting uh, the energy where it needs to be and calming yourself. So you're keeping your core warmer uh, so you can endure longer at a calmer state. Yeah, yeah. You know, like I, I find it fascinating that if we look at how um, athletes uh, at the Olympic level train these days, 
they're training with a tremendous amount of visualization. Right. You know, that's something everybody utilizes. And um, uh, when I was training towards the Olympics and swimming uh, many, many, many years ago, that was something that I was doing. And there's a lot of power to this interesting realm that we have in between our ears that um, is how we define our reality. Like we don't know what reality is. The only sense that we have that goes directly into our brain without being filtered is our sense of smell. Mm. But everything else, everything else is translated. Yeah. So we have, we have these, these, um, these stimuli that are brought in and then translated. And so we form this internal representation of the external reality. And what we internalize is not reality. It's just that piece that we are choosing to see through all of our filters and distortions. And that's what we got. So, you know, I don't have, I don't have answers, but I have some, some questions and some experiences that lead me to believe that um, how, we, how we define, determine our reality matters a tremendous amount and that um the way in which we move through this this uh this plane of existence is um is a little bit a little bit flexible sure you, know? you bet I, I remember seeing a uh a toddler or or even somewhere i don't know what the proper nomenclature is for between an infant and a toddler, perhaps closer to an infant, um, in a in a cold spring in Montana when we were camping, or in Wisconsin when we were camping one time, the mother was holding the the you know half infant half toddler's hands, and the baby was walking into this very very cold water, and the mother uh, was clothed but had her uh, bare feet and she was like freezing like she was just having this you know <laughs> freezing episode and the child was delighted and was not reacting to freezing at all and uh, to me that exemplified this you know the 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 brain barrier of the mother thinking oh no oh this is so cold and the child was just delighting in the sensation no fear, yeah. no expectation, no hierarchy of association between the stimulus and, you know, what it means to them. Just the raw experience. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so many people do things that are outside of the realm of what we think of as being possible or achievable by the average human. Um, you know, the guy who... Um, not Wim Hof, there's somebody else who's really into being in uh, super freezing temperatures and, um, and, you know, science is trying to study what this person is doing, like how they are able to uh, withstand and, and enjoy basically being enclosed in ice for, uh, for, you know, fairly long periods of time where the average person would uh, die from hypothermia and have frostbite and, um, and it'd be super bad. And what has struck me um, is that that's this person's jam. 
Like that's what right. they dig. They love it. And, and so that's the energy that they carry with them. I remember being in, uh, I was in a sweat in with the Lakota people on the Pine Ridge. And, um, and I had watched, um, you know, over a number of days where, um, you know, for one thing, we're in South Dakota and it's summertime and we're, you know, this huge fire and the rocks red hot. And, um, and I noticed that the temperature inside the sweat varied. Um, it felt like quite a bit from day to day from sweat to sweat mm-hmm. and um, and that there would be days when it seemed easier for me to be there and days when it seemed like it was really hard to withstand all of that heat. But then uh, one of the, one of the native guys there at a certain point, he turns towards me and he says, you know, the secret, the secret to being able to sit here and, and, and be okay to be comfortable with the heat is you have to know the songs. And when you know the songs and when you can sing the songs, then it's not so hot. Yeah. And that was totally my experience, you know, as I learned the songs and as I was able to sing with them, then that's where my focus was. That's where my consciousness was it wasn't in oh i'm so hot oh if it gets any hotter i'm really gonna struggle i don't know how much longer i can make it um but instead just being really fully present and going into these songs absolutely that's that's great that same here man but you know i was talking with donnie fish that that episode will air sometime in the next few weeks and uh talking about those songs and the the memory as you say the story right now of singing those songs in the sweats that's where your focus is and you're 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 in the sweat lodge but you're you're not preoccupied by the heat or the the closed quarters or anything like that you are singing that the song together you know yeah 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 oh uh Go ahead. What were you going to say? Oh, just it reminds me of a friend of mine who um, she it's not MS and, and forgive me, Laura. And that's another interview that's going to be coming up. But um, she has uh, uh, um, an illness that she got when she was 12 years old and, and basically her body stopped growing. And she has a lot of pain from that. She's now in her early 50s. Um, but she practices a lot of mind over matter. And it, it is very effective in managing the pain. And it takes concentration um, and it, it takes a will, but it is a clear separation of the experience of the discomfort or the, the pain um, and, and where your mind is. So. Yeah. Yeah. The old uh, focus on of when you are meditating and then you step out your side of your body to observe yourself meditating then to ask the question, who is the one meditating? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> I believe that we limit ourselves unnecessarily all the time and uh, that there's so much more to being human and there's so much more to being, which is beyond simply human. 
this is completely what drives me. That is my jam. And I, I, and in whatever I do, wherever it is that I'm going to be applying my energy, myself, my attention, my doings, it's going to be along that edge, that curling edge of the wave of the infinite that we are right now with awareness, with, with an interest in, in, displaying that not exposing it because i think it's always there um but just in in somehow highlighting it because it's to realize that we are a phenomenon of life it takes out the the individualism of it you know it it takes out that separate sense of self ego and it really allows you to dissolve that separation into the oneness of this creative force that is this life right now, this moment right now, always right now. It's fucking amazing. Excuse my French. Yeah. It's the little yeah. French I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's why I wanted to, you know, draw attention to um, the tribes whose land I have recently left to come down here over the holidays and be in the land of the Keech and the Chumash because it's an acknowledgement of something that is deeper. You know, here in, in colonizer culture land, everything is, you know, kind of the same. There's, um, there's all of our stuff that comes from someplace far away, much of it from China, um, you know, we've got um, a hodgepodge of different um, traditions, customs that are carried from the past, but most of which have been really twisted in some way, like Christmas and New Year's. Um, and, um, and all of us, pretty much, uh, all of us that are part of this colonizer uh, realm anyway, have come from someplace else. And we, as a group, have imposed our will upon this landscape to turn it into something that feels familiar, which is completely opposite to the indigenous approach, which is how do I blend into and harmonize with the landscape such that all of my stories and my relationships and my ways of being are inseparable from what is naturally present here, all of the beings and energies of this place. And that informs language um, so that the language is tied to it. It informs you know, the stories um, and it informs the, the crafts and the, um, the skills, um, the, the cultural practices, everything. And, um, and that's what I keep that's what I keep leaning into on a personal level because um, I haven't been born into a culture or society which is really um, uh, in any kind of good relationship with the land. Mm -hmm. And um, yes, I I could um, I could probably spend time with um, these different tribes that have a <clears throat> an unbroken tradition although uh, you know a lot of a lot of pain in their history but still still very much in relationship with land although things have changed so much and 
it would be informative, helpful. Um, a lot of it would be beautiful, um, and it would be it would be good for me to uh, to have that approach with a lot of humility and um, to uh, to be open to being guided in the ways that I could be genuinely helpful to those people. But um, but I'm like I'm not I'm not trying to become Blackfeet. I'm not trying to become Lakota. Um, I'm trying to become Chris. You know, I'm trying to be me. And I'm also trying to, as I go through that, um, support as many others as I can in, um, in their personal journeys of finding interconnectedness and harmony within this, uh, this landscape. You know, I, I'm not encouraging anyone to go back to live in a cave, but I am teaching um, how to do a lot of really, really ancient skills that tie us back into a time period when everyone was living in harmony. So it's foundational and it's useful, but then um, it's also limiting because the world is, is moving at a pace and there's all of this... Um, all of the modern that is uh, that there's just absolutely a commitment to keep pushing forward uh, as fast as we can, even though uh, it's not sustainable and even though it's causing so much pain and suffering in the world. Yeah. It's, it's nothing that can be sort of stopped or solved by, by any one person, but it is for each one person to do what they can to, to, better understand and experience the harmony with the place that they're they're at and and who they are and you know it's like the raindrop to the flood you know um you can't stop the flood uh it, it's part of that's part of it like there you don't have a flood without each individual raindrop that's part of it and the other part is you can't the world won't heal unless each individual heals and that's as much as we all can do is is wherever we're at whoever we are to if if we're able to have the possibility the opportunity to learn i think especially these stone age skills these old skills that that sort of retune our frequencies to be in harmony and i think the idea of musical harmony is very useful in understanding the way that mm -hmm. harmony can feel and sound good like in tune you know even if it's at a a different note it is in harmony uh with with the place and it's a very powerful experience yeah yeah so i'm back down here in los angeles um yeah. greater los angeles uh, 18 million people uh, it's it's amazing and it's Tell me been, about the journey. Like, how did you drive there? <laughs> train you flew, or what was it? And and how you know it it starts to unpeel like an onion or something as you get closer. What what was it like? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was about a sixteen-hour drive, um, and I did that over two days. And um, you know, I had the benefit of of looking at uh, a weather forecast along my journey so that I could try to dodge two different storm systems that were coming through. And for the most part, I was successful in, uh, 
avoiding snowstorms. And um, I, uh, I only had, had one person that uh, pickup truck coming in the opposite, uh, the opposite lanes of traffic spun out, went across the medium and then, uh, and then across my two lanes of travel. Oh, geez. And into the snow on the other side. And, you know, fortunately, I think I was in northern Idaho at that time and just not a lot of traffic. And he zipped through without hitting anybody. But, um, yeah, gradually moving further south and further south and seeing more people and the weather warming and um and then finally getting down here into um through nevada and uh desert country there and uh and then down to southern california where i'm looking at you know there's palm trees and um lemons and uh orange trees and it's you know i go outside and i'm wearing a t-shirt um hmm. And so that's, you know, it's remarkable because the United States is so large. It's remarkable the number of really distinctly different environments and climates that you get. Um, you know, even just two days of driving and things are so different. But then, you know, I get into this place where there's, um, it's dominated by concrete and lights and um the sounds of vehicles and and it's so dominant it it's it's so much when i look at the stimulus that is coming through and i filter out like okay what are the purely natural influences that are coming from bird calls and the sounds that are peculiar to wind moving through the leaves of a certain kind of a tree and um, and the the quality of the sunshine and uh, the scent of um, the soil microbes and and um, and whatnot that makes this place this place they're kind of overwhelmed by the sounds of traffic and the concrete and the smells of um, vehicle exhaust and, uh, and perfumes and, you know, all of the, all of the human things. Yeah. And when I'm purely in nature, everything is um, harmonious, harmonious in the sense of harmony in the sense of a musical uh, performance in which there are notes which all are in reference to the other notes. Every instrument, instrument is playing with and playing off every other instrument. And, you know, so the birds do that. When the birds are talking, they are listening for the other sounds so that they're not um, calling directly over top of another bird there's a there's a cadence there's a rhythm and they're listening for the spaces to insert their message mm -hmm. and together that creates this this woven uh set of relationships and um and here what really is challenging for me is that it's not that way there's 
lots of different sounds and stimuli which are um, which are moving at their at their own pace their own reality they're not trying to connect with and weave into all of the other things happening here um, and so I have to um, consciously tell myself yeah the sound of that siren is not relevant to me the sound of that siren I can ignore because it's over there and you know it's it's somebody else that it's it that it's about and um, but it's it's loud in my world in my um, internal construct of the external reality yeah and um, you know and so um, yeah this has been this has been during the time that I lived down here which was uh, about six years that has been the really big challenge you know how to be informed by to to learn from nature's harmony when I have so much disharmony, so many things that are um, separate, that are operating in a separate fashion, that um, kind of pull me in, in many different directions. Yeah, and you, there are even so many layers in the city, especially in a city like Los Angeles or New York or Chicago, where there's a, a, a level on top the level that is is you know purposely designed to try to compete for your attention to to over you know above the other stimulation grab your eyesight grab your ears to try to sell you something uh and to to learn you know as if you grew up in the city you learn to filter that out you've heard that old story of the city kids and the country kids and they switch places and the, the city kids go in the desert let's say and the kids from the desert go in the city and neither one of them can sleep at night for all the noise because <laughs> you know they're used to the the sounds in their home environment because they've learned to filter it out um yeah. There's yeah. so much of oh. us that are that's filtering it out in the cities that that could otherwise be used to be tuning in and, and finding that harmony. Yeah, yeah. And so I am speaking to my limitations um, and acknowledging that. And um, I'm here with my friend Rachel, and uh, and she grew up. She grew up in some some hard places, uh, inner cities of. Uh, Brooklyn and um, Little Haiti uh, down in Miami. And so she has a very different way of tracking what is happening around her and, um, and being able to feel into the energy of what's going on here. Because that's, you know, these are environments where everything can be fine until suddenly it's really not fine and things yeah. can change quickly that way. Um, whereas for me, you know, I'm, I'm out in the woods and, uh, and that might be the case where I'm like a little too close to a moose and everything is fine until suddenly it's really not fine. But for the most part, um, for the most part, things are very safe and things to me are very predictable and very understandable and um, and very 
Um, and so, you know, if uh, if a moose turns um, turns and and uh, decides to charge me, there was plenty of information leading up to that point, which was clear and direct and honest. Which, if I were to um, be aware and choose to pay attention, I could easily avoid. And um, and so I was out here, uh, not this trip, but um, a while back when I was here with Rachel in the city, and we had to um, we had to get uh, some money out of a bank, and there was uh, she and I had two different banks, and we went to a, a bank machine and withdrew some money from one, and then we went, you know, the other one was just, I don't know, like 400 yards further down the way. And we stopped at that other bank machine. And, uh, and Rachel said to me, did you see? Same guy at both places. And I was, what? <laughs> what do you mean? And she was like, yeah, did you see? It's that guy, that one right there. He was at the first one. And then he showed up at the second um, bank branch. And she tracked that super easily. It completely, I didn't notice at all. Um, and that's really been fascinating for me to watch. Like, what are the holes in my awareness when I'm in a city? And then when I take people, you know, not, not pointing to Rachel, but just in, as a general statement, when I take city people out into the woods, they don't see things. They don't notice the things that to me are super obvious. Mm -hmm. That's a whole language. There's information streaming in from so many different places that if you haven't learned how to listen or how to read the signs, uh, you're going to miss it. Yeah, yeah. And so this is, this is part of my education now, something that I have been leaning into for, um, well, ever since I came down here to Los Angeles and, and it's uh, so far, it's been a very slow journey is I have, I have always been frustrated with humans because I find them to be dishonest. I find them to be shady and manipulative um, in their, in their actions. And a lot of that is not necessarily conscious. Like there's a lot of conscious shadiness for sure, but, um, but a lot of it is unconscious, you know, or subconscious where um, people are acting from biases and limitations and trauma um, that they're not even really aware of. Like, why didn't you tell me that that's what you wanted? Well, I thought if I did, maybe you'd be upset or um, it didn't seem like it was a big deal or like, no, dude, just be honest. But it's not something that um, for modern humans anyway is, um, is, is, really, um, is really present, this like depth of honesty that we could call transparency. And I find nature, nature to me is totally transparent. And, uh, and I'm curious, I'm leaning into somebody like Rachel who looks around and she, um, she's able to evaluate characters um, very, very quickly and very accurately. That's never been my skill set. You know, I want to believe 
the very best about each person. So I tend to believe more about their potential than what they are demonstrating from their behaviors. Um, so yeah, that's, that, that's my journey around the city here is, um, is there really a harmony that's happening here that uh, can be really deeply, clearly, and beautifully understood that goes beyond what people are, um, beyond this apparent shadiness and manipulation and um, subconscious, um, subconscious separation from, from their authentic selves that can be understood so that the harmony is sort of translated um, and, and heard and, and perceived as beautiful in that internal construct of the external reality. And, and there's a reluctance to, to answer that question with no, there is not. Um, and I think that that's fair because it probably happens in smaller little micro environments, micro pools between two people or in a small group in this apartment or out at that park or something like that instead of in the whole like you have in nature. Or maybe, you know, maybe we're just not enlightened. <laughs> and, uh, you know, let me get back to you on that. Yeah. Uh, go, go get enlightened and then I'll come back and I'll let you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, it's good. You're, you're a good teacher. And, and I think it's an, an important quality, um, you know, that you, you maintain to give the, the generosity of potential to each person as being able to overcome their individual specific limitations wherever they're at, uh, you know, to, to grow from that, whether they do or not. Something that came to mind as you're saying this, you know, that's that sort of thick in the cities and, and in terms of our awareness and filtering out is, and this is, this is just the example that comes to mind this morning. My daughter was still here. We had a, a late Christmas celebration and we watched as we do uh, each Christmas, the movie Elf. And I was watching, I don't know if you've seen that movie with Will Ferrell as this uh, human elf. Maybe I saw it a long time ago. I'm familiar um, with this anyway. It's, it, it makes me laugh every time. Um, but anyways, his father, the character of his father is like the head of some children's book uh, public publisher, and he's sort of a Scrooge character. And I recognized in his character uh, the thing that we're supposed to all recognize and be like, oh, yeah, that guy, um, because it it's a person that is driven by the spreadsheet by you know the the earnings that's willing to um be dishonest you know in a way that that is so common we just say oh yeah and we almost don't hear that or don't see it anymore because there's a the money making profit model is rife with incentive to do what it takes to make a dollar, even if it is something that is dishonest or in poor taste or is otherwise somehow emotionally, psychologically, ethically toxic, you know? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, for myself, I'm really striving to be in a continual state of expansion. So when I was, uh, when I was really little, up until the age of 10, um, I, I got into a lot of fights. 
I was, uh, I had a lot of um, unconscious, un, unresolved anger. And it didn't take much, it didn't take much teasing to bring that to the surface. And then, you know, I, uh, I would be, I would be all in it. And, and when I was 10, um, there was a, there was a kid uh, that was visiting. I don't know what he said. He must have teased me in some way. My dad and I, we had built this uh, bird feeder on a long pole and um and i ripped that thing out of the ground and went chasing after this kid with it good thing i didn't catch him and my dad saw me and uh called me into the house and i'm like oh here we go and he told me to go downstairs and wait for him at the bottom of the stairs and and i was like okay i'm gonna get it um I'm going to get a spanking um, every once in a while. He would get a board from the wood pile and that's what he would use for a spanking. And, yeah. you know, he was, he wasn't abusive at all, but, um, uh, but he was big and he was scary. And I felt like, you know, I'm going to get punished. And he just sat beside me on the steps there and told me about what it was like for him growing up and uh, dealing with his anger. And I realized at age 10, okay, so this, um, this anger thing that I've got is hurting the people that I care about and I need to stop it. And so I made that commitment, I'm just gonna stop. And uh, so I did, I repressed all of the anger that I had in me because I didn't know how to transform it and I shut it down. And then I realized over the next few years or so that all of the emotions are connected and me shutting down my anger also shut down my love and my joy mm. and my ability to experience the world. And I kind of started going through the world more like a machine than like a human. And then actually transforming that anger and coming to a place where I embrace it and I have a, re a good, healthy relationship with it now that's been a journey. That's been a lot of years working through that. And, um, and so I, I now look at um, my anger as something that I really appreciate and I don't bring it out very often, but I'm not opposed to it at all. Like there are times when I'm super happy to bring in an intense, loud voice and to be physically present with, yes, I have all of that energy in my body right now, which is anger or rage. And I am capable of all of those things consciously that that elevated level of energy affords me. And at the same time, there's also so much value in being able to hit those incredible depths of sorrow and to be able to empathically connect with those people who are suffering and to empathically be able to connect with, to understand somebody who is suicidal or somebody who is a Scrooge and is operating from that level of selfishness and hoarding and the fear of not having enough. You know, right. like, um, and so, yeah, I feel like these are all tools in the toolkit. And maybe when we have a completed toolkit 
and we are competent in utilizing all of these different tools, all of these different ways of being, then maybe that's what wholeness is. And I keep leaning into that, you know? Um, so, yeah, this, this new journey that I'm on being back in Montana again after such a long time is really beautiful for me because I'm, I'm harmonizing with nature. Um, I'm getting all of these lessons from the, the chickadees and the magpies and the deer and the elk and the grasses and the wind and the cold and everything that makes that land special and unique. And then I'm also getting it from the people that I'm there in um, sometimes reluctant community with, you know, mm -hmm. there's, there's a bunch of rugged individualists there that they're really wanting materials and methods and they're really resistant to the idea that we're there as a community. Um, and then there's others who are really wanting community um, and everybody's got their traumas and their, um, their limitations and their unique ways of perceiving the world that we share. So just so, continue it, to expand and embrace. Yeah, it, it is so amazing to witness that and to appreciate it. And that's, that it's, it's so very good that you have that discernment to, to see and understand and accept the multitude of different varieties, shapes, colors, sizes, you know, temperaments, uh, desires, etc. It's great. Yeah, I feel like whatever it is, whatever, uh, whatever is, is around me or directed towards me or that I'm experiencing there, um, I, I'm all in, you know, I bought into it. Um, just like your, your, uh, little pooch there tore up your sagebrush. Mm -hmm. Um, here are the lessons that are happening and here's what's being offered. And, uh, there are no coincidences. Oh, these dogs teach me so much. Each dog, you know, when we're talking about, um, that you're not, uh, you know, squalish or Blackfeet or Lakota, um, and, these dogs, you know, they, for the most part, they're not purebred. Uh, you know, they are some mixture of generations of, of different dogs. And they, though they may not have this um, sort of lineage of, of foundation or attributes, they still are each an individual, beautiful, present being that has their own you know, song, their own walk, their own rhythm, their own temperament. And uh, that is, that's a humbling lesson that I, that they teach me. They're such great teachers. I learned so much from them in, in listening to them and, and learning how to meet them. Uh, and it, it, you know, I do apply to humanity in, in the best possible ways. So what, yeah, yeah. what, are the other students also, is, is there a break from the, the course right now? Has everyone uh, like sort of gone back home or something for this time of year or, or did you just yeah, say, uh, I'm out of here guys. I'll be back in a week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's, there's a break from official courses right now, official teachings. And most of um, 
I'm just going to use the word community because to me that is an accurate use of that word. Um, most of the community has gone to, you know, go see family and, um, and, and they're not on the property, but there are, uh, what is it? Five people. Yeah. Five, um, five students have stayed. And so they, um, I just was talking with Tom, who's uh, the director of the program. Um, so some of them have gone and they've spent some time with Tom and uh, I'm sure that they have, you know, enjoyed taking a shower and, um, and being able to watch a television um, and, uh, you know, all of the things that, that Tom's home affords there. And I saw they also made a shaving horse, which we're going to need. So that's a tool that you sit on it and you put your feet onto a pedal. And when you push forward, that brings a lever down that can then hold a project on a platform to enable you to use a draw knife. So a blade that you're holding in your hands and pulling towards you to uh, pull off shavings from uh, the two things that are going to be most valuable for us using this shaving horse is going to be making bows and also making our paddles for the trip. So, uh, so we've got that tool now and we've got a bunch of uh, spruce that we've now gotten cut into slabs uh, from a big spruce tree and that's what we're going to carve our paddles out of. Uh, so everybody's going to you know, go on this journey of being able to read the life of the tree in the growth rings, in the way that the grain of the wood moves and where the branches are. And, um, and you, can't, you can't force that. Um, you have to read that and, and work with it. Sometimes you've got to turn the paddle around and carve in the other direction or else mm -hmm. you'll run a split in the wood. So, yeah. The journey of being on a journey continues and uh, there's markers, but um, having a paddle is not the destination. It's another important tool. I, I just, you know, have such an appreciation for the, the potential that you are offering uh, through the experiences that you're facilitating for the numerous other tools that we are capable of finding, of discovering, of discovering within ourselves or in each other or, or in the, our, our relationship with the world around us and how they can, we can incorporate them into our understanding of ourselves and the world around us and really enable the transformation and evolution, a change. Those are, are real, such valuable experiences and, and tools again that will otherwise lay outside of our sort of day-to-day -day, nine to five grind. Yeah. 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 You know, I think that there's um, this, this end marker with our, our year long program of going 500 miles down the Yellowstone river with all stone age gear and paddling a dugout canoe with paddles that, uh, folks have carved from a spruce tree and and you know that's that's a really that's a really nice 
um, thing to add to your resume. <laughs> and yet, uh, really the value that I see from this program is the real value will be, do you know yourself better? Yeah. Can you speak, can you speak with more kindness? And have, do you have more access to empathy? Um, do you have more compassion? Um, do you, uh, do you feel your interconnectedness to things and does that cause you to change the way in which you utilize things, um, in the way that you relate to, to people, to plants, to animals, your sources of nourishment, you know, it's all of these things that go so much deeper. It's all about the human journey of, um, going beyond this self-centered, not necessarily selfish, but self-centered focus on I am me to we are we. Yeah. And even the human-centric, like, we are a part of, of a wonderfully, incredibly beautiful community of life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the people who were there and saw um, a spruce tree fall and, um, and have witnessed that this is, this is the ending of one lifeline and the beginning of another one. And then making these paddles and then using them to propel their, uh, their craft with their bodies along this journey um, and some of these paddles are going to break. Um, you know, we're going to have all of those experiences too. What does that mean? You know, because that means something. And the nuance of what that means will be different for each person mm -hmm. and significant. You know, there's much there. You're a damn good teacher, man. You're a good listener and, and guide and, uh, and student yourself. I think... To me, that's what comes through is you are a, like a forever student, which enables you to be that much more effective as a, as a teacher or guide or, you know, demonstrating walking the walk. If you want to have good students, you show that you continue to be a student and are learning and looking and listening and adapting and growing. It's, it's exciting and inspiring. It's thrilling to me to, to be listening to you, to have this conversation. It's, it's really like um, very satisfying and filling and exciting and it's cool, man. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Good on you. Um, and so for listeners, this is the, the fourth conversation we've had about the Stone Age skills in general, and the third uh, that's been during the, the time of this uh, year-long course. And today you talked about um, a little bit about bow drill and, and hand drill, and we can get more into the specifics of that maybe at some time, but you certainly talked more in detail about keeping that ember in a cow horn with some, some dried animal dung, uh, in this case, an, an elk dropping the size of the last digit of your thumb approximately, and some other things, some mosses or something, to be able to carry that and keep it alive. And, and it may be, uh, and we talked about this, it seemed like your thumbs up, uh, sharing some kind of skill tidbits each time we check in. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Let's do that. 
I think that's great. Um, it's, it, if I imagine myself as one of my, my dog friends or a deer, it makes my ears like stand up on end with attention. Like, Ooh, I want to hear that. What is that? I'm going to pay attention to that. So uh, that's really cool. So that was today's, uh, and the, that child ember, that was a beautiful metaphor too. I really loved that. Taking that child ember and feeding it and, you know, nourishing it until it can give back to the community. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there is a video that I made uh, a whole bunch of years ago when I lived in British Columbia that folks can check out too, that goes a little deeper into hand drill fire making. And I go into the floating technique, which is um, not very well known um, so that your hands stay on the top of the spindle and don't slide down when you're doing it. You showed and, me that. Uh, and I used that to impress the shit out of some uh, indigenous uh, people in, in Africa. We were, we were touring there and, and visited some guys that live in the bush. And their trick was to show that they could start a fire with, uh, I was using, and they did it too, man. They were doing that, that, uh, you know, nothing on top, just force down, force down as you alternate left to right, left, right, left, right. And uh, that's how they did it. And then I did it. Thanks to you, Chris. And they were like, whoa, like they were freaking out. It was cool, man. It was a, it was a highlight. Oh, that's, awesome. <laughs> that's super awesome. We will super have a awesome. link to that video in the description of this podcast. So you can send that to me and I'll put it in the description so folks can find it. And uh, yeah, take a look. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> well, uh, Here's to a, a a good week into the new year now, it seems. It was last Monday. It was a week ago, wasn't it, with Solistus? Yeah. The 21st, yeah. Cool. So, and what, what do you number years? No. Or how, how does that No, work? I really... Um, I, you know, there's certainly indigenous peoples had a way of, of tracking um, long time. And yet there's also many people, you know, many of the old timers, um, you know, back before they were all sort of overtaken by the modern era and records were kept, that if you ask them, how old are you, they could not give you a specific number. and um, it's not that they, it's not that it was beyond their ability. It was just beyond their interest. Um, you know, it's not a good measurement. Uh, you know, why would we measure a person by how many years they've lived when we have the opportunity to look into their eyes and to observe their relationships mm -hmm. and see like, how have you used your time here? You know, that's a measure of a human not the number of years. Yeah. So um, I don't know, you know, uh, yeah, I guess we can call this new year 2021, but um, uh, yeah, for me living out in nature each day is each day. It's, it doesn't have more relevance because it's a Monday or a Sunday. It's just this day. And, uh, and, and now we are into this year. And I'm excited that each day within this year is changing and the sun is coming back and, um, and I'm witnessing, I'm watching 
and I'm listening for and looking for, um, you know, when do the sandhill cranes return? Um, and, uh, you know, the elk are quiet now. They're, they're no longer bugling that uh, the season of their rutting is over. And so um, I'm, I'm looking for when are they dropping their antlers and maybe I'll find one. Um, you know, it's these things that are the ways in which I'm marking time, not looking at a calendar or applying a number to them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, certainly uh, in, in this latitude up here in the Stockholm area of Sweden, uh, it is, it's dark uh, in, a, in a beautiful way. You know, I thought it would bother me, but um, I'm cool with it, man. And when the sun does peak out, especially when I had lived up in Jokmok, it's above the polar circle, you don't see the sunlight. But what you do get is, you know, several hours of sunset skies, like that's your day. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Uh, but when the sun does start to peak up above the horizon, y- you definitely feel the the draw of it, and you'll have sun worship. I mean, just getting those rays on your skin and feeling that. Um, and it's you know the seasons are marked with with a real significant stamp of of light or dark. Not so much hot or cold these days, um, but. But yeah, that, that, that's what's important about the movement of, of time here too. Yeah, yeah. Well, Chris, mm-hmm. man, um, just love and hugs and high fives and handshakes and pancakes and maple syrup and uh, smiles and good stuff. Thank you. Uh, it's really good to chat with you, Ken. Uh, it's been my pleasure once again. And we'll be uh, we'll be chatting in the meantime. Uh, we'll be texting and, and arranging for some some reasonable barter and a potential cultural exchange or something like that uh, to bring you over here. Um, that feels good, and it just has that kind of sense to it. So we'll see what comes of that. That's pretty cool. I like that. Great, great. That sounds great to me too. Thank you. All right, we'll check in in another moon. All right. Sounds good, my friend. Be well. Likewise. Happy New Year. Mm, You too. (laughs) All right. Bye Bye for now.